Welcome to the summer edition of Published or Not on 3CR, 8.55am online and digital. I'm Ewan Mitchell and for the next half hour I'll be talking books and publishing with our guest authors for the week. So whether you're relaxing on holiday or keeping the country running, I hope you enjoy Published or Not. We're four days into the new year and some of us are already busy breaking heartfelt New Year's resolutions. The city traffic is unnaturally light and we have a 41 degrees scorcher coming up this weekend. So let's dive into the third show of 3CR's summer edition of Published or Not. And as today's theme is, drumroll, compelling female protagonists in country Victoria. Yes, let me explain. Today we're going to chat about some brilliant novels built around compelling female protagonists set in northeast and northwest Victoria. And representing the northeast, my first guest has just had a second novel published by Penguin Random House, and its title is Stella and Margie. The cover boasts a shout line from none other than Ida Buttrose, who says, and I quote, I love the story of Stella and Margie. It's a poignant reminder of the power of women's friendships. So welcome to Published or Not, Glenna Thompson. Thank you for having me. Now, before you tell us about Stella and Margie, I'd like to know more about your background, Glenna. You've worked in a wide range of jobs, then changed careers to become a published novelist in 2017 with your debut novel, Blueberry. How hard was it to make the transition mid-career into becoming a writer? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'll try and tell my story very briefly, but I found myself as a single mother at the age of 27, three children, and I had to go to work. So I got a job in an aid agency and quickly progressed up into the ranks and headed their media and promotions department. I worked there for 12 years and that was when I met Ida Buttrose. She was the head of women's projects and we travelled to third world countries together. We had some interesting experiences, including one night where we shared a room in a nunnery in the north of Bangladesh. Um, As you do. Yes, as you do. After a few years, um, I decided uh, to, to leave there and I went and worked for a multinational food company. Um, within a few weeks of that, I found myself in New York at the Waldorf Astoria having meetings in the Frank Sinatra suite. What a contrast. That was a massive contrast. But um, I married again when I was in my late 40s and my husband and I decided we'd had enough of airports and meetings and all that sort of fast-track, fast-paced life. So we bought a property up in the northeast of Victoria in a, in a place not far from Uriah, Near Mansfield, a place called Strathbogie, we yep. bought a 500-acre property, which included a 50-acre uh, separate title, which had a blueberry orchard on it, and ah. that was, of course, the inspiration for my first novel, Blueberry. Blueberry. Um, so we've lived up in the northeast for about 13 years, um, and so we're now cattle farmers. And your question about how did I get into writing, yeah. having had that busy career as a working mother, um, all of a sudden I didn't have to anywhere else I didn't have to um, go to a meeting I could be still and everything was very quiet and I planted a garden and of course gardening is very relaxing and peaceful and I suppose because I'd been geared up all my life to being productive and busy I did want to do something and it was a wonderful opportunity to um, develop that creative part of my Self that had never had the opportunity to be explored before. You finally so, had that stillness, that I had peace, a, that yeah, space to think. That's right. And where we live is beautiful. There's these great granite outcrops and there's beautiful big skies and sunsets and sunrises and mist rising and, you know, 
Now you describe it very well, very evocative. Well, I do in my books because it's yeah. just there. You know, if I need any inspiration, I just have to walk out the door. Mm. Um, and so I did just start to write. And so it took me about, I don't know, 10 years to write my first book, which I have to say is still in the bottom drawer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's a little bit like an apprenticeship, that book. Yeah. Uh, I still have hopes for that book, by the way. But um, we then had that Blueberry Orchard, which we ran commercially and successfully yeah. for six years. And uh, I wrote that book and got mentored beautifully by Tony Jordan. And uh, and then I got a two-book deal with Penguin Random House, and here I am. Oh, wonderful. Mm. And you must be writing at a, a fair pace because you released Blueberry 1st of January 2017, mm. and here we are early in January 2018. Did you write uh, Stella and Margie in that one-year period, or did you have it done earlier? Well, it took me four years to write um, Blueberry, Blueberry. Uh, and in that process of that book finding its home at Penguin Random House I was writing the second book yeah. in the hope that, you know, well I was a writer now so I'm just going to keep writing, I don't know um, what else to do. The quick follow up, that's, that's a good right. idea and uh, yeah. then when I did get the two book deal and lifted myself up the floor um, <laughs> I kept working very steadily on this book and it, it, I was probably right about a thousand words a day so and the book did come together quite quickly because of these two very strong, powerful women that, you know, their first person alternating chapters and you're just able to sort of spin off each other and all this fabulous conflict. So, um, yeah, so the book did come together quite quickly. Well, let's talk about those uh, fabulous characters, Stella and Margie. Could you tell us a little bit about them, perhaps starting with Stella? She's in Chapter 1, and how old she, what's her background, and yeah. what's she up against with Margie? Yeah, so Stella is um, 42. She's a sexy, gorgeous, charismatic, passionate young woman. Well, 42 is young, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, she's married to Ross, and she's got two daughters. Um, her big passion in life is community theatre, and she's just written a play and wanting to direct a play. And that play for her is about getting to know her own mother so the theme another sort of um, subtext story in this book is the theme of motherhood and and I relate to this personally I think we're hard on our mothers our children are hard on mothers and so Stella's kind of exploring her relationship with her mother who died so she's kind of big on community theatre and that's her big passion um, and she's now living on this property in the middle of nowhere. She's a city girl with her husband, and she's very happy. Now, did that answer your question? <laughs> it does. That's, that's yeah. painted the circumstances yeah. of Stella. Yeah. And now Margie. How does Margie come into Stella's yeah. world? Okay. So Margie is the matriarch that used to live on this property where Stella is now. It's called Mary Hill, this property, and it's been a generational property. I actually come from one of those rural patriarchies where the boys uh, get the fortune and, the, and you know, they become the heirs of the property and the girls get a bus ticket, and, you know, to, to town. Melbourne, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, But I'm not complaining, you know, I've had a fantastic life. But, uh, but that's actually a reality and not yeah. all farms, but in some farms and particularly uh, in previous generations that was the, the case. So, so, um, so, so Margie has been married to the fifth generation Ballantyne, uh, and she has, uh, a, 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 I was going to say, an unhappy marriage. And I, I won't go into any details there, but I want to say also another theme in this book, I think, is marriage. Yeah. Uh, there are, as, there is a really great marriage in this story, and uh, a not so happy marriage. 
Mm. Yeah, and the two, though, uh, thrust together, Margie and Stella, uh, how are they, what brings them together? Okay, so Margie has moved out. She despises her daughter-in-law. Um, she's not considered to be a suitable Ballantine wife because of what I described, you know, this sort of charismatic, sexy, you know, she wears hipster jeans, blah, 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 and she's just not suited to this kind she's of aristocrat. She's expected to be much more conservative. Yeah, she's you know? like the, 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 the sort of rural aristocrat uh, that Margie sees herself. So Margie, when Ross and Stella marry, she leaves that homestead and moves into Benalla, uh, which is north of where I live now. And she has she's a lonely woman, and there's a fascinating story about her, but she has an accident, she has a hip operation, and she can't get into rehab, and Stella insists that she comes back and lives with her, and the circumstances set up uh, to, to get her back into that house. So you've got two women who, who don't really get on living under one roof, which I have to say is brilliant from a writer's point of view, because yeah. you've got conflict right in your face. Yeah. But how ironic, too, that Stella asks Margie, yes. but not Margie's own son, Ross, Stella's yeah. husband. Yeah. Ross doesn't want her there. No, so the, so the story unfolds about that uh, relationship. Another, another theme in this book yeah. is these um, relationships that parents have with adult children. And there's a backstory there that uh, I think the reader at the end of this book will understand perfectly why Ross is who he is. And I think the reader, I think, will have compassion for all characters. But what Margie's dilemma is, is when she moves back into this old house, which she used to run beautifully, everything's clean, tidy, organised. Stella, of course, is chaotic and runs the place chaotically. And her challenge is, uh, as a lonely woman who is now dependent uh, on her family for support, she realises that the woman that she despises, Stella, and Stella is actually the only person that really cares for her. That's her challenge. Oh, that's, you've painted the dilemma well. Now, before we wind up, I want to talk about something you've made uh, look very easy, and that's alternating first-person points of view. So the first chapter, we see everything from Stella's point of view, and it's written uh, with, using the pronoun I, I saw this, uh, my. And then you alternate to Margie and then back and forth. Now, you've made it look very easy, but was that hard to do in practice? Look, it, it does sound hard the way you've just described it, I have to say, but um, what I found, I found it easy to do. Uh, I found it easy to do because they were so different in, in, in point, two different characters and they were so in conflict it was easy to get fired up about both of them. And I did have a coffee with Tony Jordan who's been a mentor for me when I did Blueberry and I had a coffee with her. I was writing this and she said something that I think was really important and that's why I've acknowledged her in the back of the book. She said at the end of each chapter where Stella finishes, the, the next protagonist, Margie, has to start off the next chapter exactly where Stella finishes. Yeah. So the Good story keeps, keeps... Otherwise, I think I would have got a bit lost. In, and that's probably quite obvious, that advice. But it was really helpful to have that imprinted. So when Stella's finished what she's got to say and she's got on her own sort of journey about her play and her kids and her husband and the farm, so you've kind of finished that chapter on a, a sort of a teaser, a note, so you want to find out what happened next, but then you go into Margie's chapter and Margie, Margie continues the story. So you have these two uh, flawed individuals and they're both unreliable narrators. And so the reader understands the truth of what's really going on because they're able to discern the truth by reading both points of view. Mm. 
Uh, that's a great way to put it too. Unreliable narrators, which makes them all the more intriguing because the writer's got to mm. work out well, what is the truth, as you say. So I'm talking to Glenna Thompson and her second novel has just come out. It's published by Penguin Random House. It's called Stella and Margie and it's in all good bookstores right now. It's just come out. And uh, so do yourself a favour and get down and have a look over the summer break. And following on from um, Glenna's personal experience, uh, we've got someone else and she's representing the northwest of Victoria. Her name is Sue Williams. Have you ever considered a midlife career change to become a published author? My next guest has done just that. About a decade ago, she began working on the manuscript for what became her first published novel. In May 2018, she will have her third novel published by one of Australia's best publishers, Tex Publishing. And today, I'd like to take our listeners inside what it takes to write successful novels when you start the whole process mid-career. Welcome to Published or Not, Sue Williams. Thanks, Ewan. Great to be here. So your three novels are very funny murder mysteries based around the amateur sleuth Cass Tuplin, who runs a takeaway food shop in the dry and sparsely populated area of Victoria's Mallee region. With that in mind, what are the titles of your three novels? Well, the first one's Murder with the Lot, and then number two, which came out last year, is Dead Men Don't Order Flake. (laughs) And then the third one, which is coming out in May May this year, is Live and Let Fry. (laughs) Even let fry, okay. Uh, and all these stories take place in the tiny semi-fictitious town, we'll get to that in a minute, the semi-fictitious town of Rusty Boar. Tell us more about Cass Tuplin and some of the key characters in Rusty Boar. Well, Cass is a woman of a certain age, a woman in her prime, in her late 40s, and she runs the best and only takeaway shop in Rusty Boar, population 147, <laughs> and uh, just up the road from Vern's General Store, which is the only other shop in town. And she is a not entirely licensed private investigator. Um, <laughs> not entirely. Not entirely. Much she, to she, the dis- has she done a correspondence course? <laughs> <has> she? <laughs> she did start a TAFE course, but unfortunately the TAFE closed down partway through. So much to the disapproval of her cop son, Dean, she, uh, she investigates some pretty serious crimes because people keep coming to her. There's only 147 people in Rusty Ball, but they all have problems. So she's got one son who's a police officer, but I think she's got another son as well, hasn't yes, she? Yes, her younger son, Brad, who's an environmental kind of warrior slash struggler who um, is still living at home. He still lives at home at And home. with his girlfriend, Madison, and oh, okay. her ferrets. <laughs> ferrets, so a very quirky world that they're living in. And... Uh, when you put together a, a novel like this, do you start with the mystery first or do you have a, a, a character growth pattern in mind? How do you begin? Well, for me, though, the first book just started with Cass's voice. So she arrived as a voice in my head. I know that doesn't sound good, but I was out bushwalking and I saw a flock of white cockatoos fly overhead against the blue sky. And uh, some voice in my head said they look like bits of chip paper against the sky because uh, they were so white. And who would say that, I thought, afterwards. And it was this takeaway shop owner uh, who, who also, you know, she just took over, really. So she writes the books. 
sort of. I'm glad you disclosed that on public radio. (laughs) And don't worry, so lots of authors will understand. Uh, I do recall John Marsden saying that he couldn't actually start a story or really come to grips with the story until he had the voice of the main character in his head. So, And uh, people who've spent a bit of time writing, not just trying to get it right, but uh, if they're taken away with a voice will really get a sense of uh, how that can all happen. You just hear the voice and it can unfold. But you make it sound quite easy in terms of unfolding. Can we perhaps step back to the decade ago when you were thinking about writing uh, your first novel and you were working as a chartered accountant with a PhD in marine biology, is that right? Yes, you could argue that I'm um, indecisive about a career <laughs> path <laughs> or you could argue that I was getting a lot of experiences in, in life. So which one was at the fore at that point, uh, accountancy or marine biology? Um, I started with accounting. I think actually so that, I was always a writer in denial, I suspect, oh, okay. because yeah. I loved writing at school yeah. and uh, I loved English. Uh, but uh, I came from a farming family and a very practical farming family and writing was not something that was ever considered to be a career or anything like that. Yeah. So very quickly I got into the numbers world, maths and science, and I, I studied chartered accounting. And so I became a chartered accountant right. first, yeah. and, but I was always searching for something a little bit more fun, um, and marine biology was where, was where I headed initially. Now, can I ask you at what stage of your life you changed from chartered accounting to marine biology? Late 20s. Late 20s? Yeah, okay. and I did a degree in marine biology in the north of England, as you do in the freezing cold North Sea. Oh, I thought you were going to say James Cook University in Townsville, in England. Yeah, the PhD got better, though, because that was in Perth in Western Australia. So that involved a lot of snorkelling around coral, which was a lot nicer than the (laughs) muddy sort of freezing cold waters of the North Sea. So, And that brought you up to what age when you started thinking about writing a novel? So by then I'd qualified with my PhD in uh, photosynthetic sea slugs. Not a lot of job opportunities in the world for, not a lot of call for sea slug experts. Oh, slightly more than nematode worms, but there you go. (laughs) And uh, at this point I was in my mid-30s. Uh, I thought, hmm, I think it's going to be back to accounting for you, Sue. So I did a few miserable years of full-time accounting while trying to pretend I didn't want to write a book, writing things on the train to and from work, little descriptions, little vignettes of people, trying to not look like I was writing about the man that was sitting next to me on the train in case I disturbed him. So you became a keen observer. Did you write articles, though? I did, yeah. yeah. I was writing science articles. I wrote um, a few pieces for Radio National for the science show. Okay. Uh, And initially they were quite factual. Um, And in fact, it was really, it was an article out of my PhD that sort of encouraged me to to try and get more published because I I won a prize in New Scientist um, essay writing competition. I was writing about my, my sea slugs that I was very... Very fond of. And so I they recognise that talent in the context of sea slugs. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, fiction is imaginings based on facts, isn't it? So you've got that foundation there. And it's sort of, I think I actually was um, getting more and more into fiction because I, I started writing non-fiction and then I, was, I then wrote a piece about the impact of wind turbines on vampires in South Gippsland <laughs> for Radio National, and I realised then maybe fiction was going to be my calling. So, so are, are these vampire bats that we're talking about? Or? Actual vampires. It was completely oh. made up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So it was. Um, yeah. There might have been, you know, some species <laughs> I didn't know about. Okay. All right. So you got into fiction there, and so what uh, stage of your life you're up to at this point? So by this stage, I was approaching 40 yeah. um, and I I was trying to ride on the train. I was 
trying to write whenever I had a day off. I couldn't really get momentum and I also didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. You know, yeah. I, I was trying to write short stories because I thought, oh, well, they're more contained. Uh, they're not actually easier, though, than writing a novel, but at least they're contained. Oh, sure. To, um, to have an impact in a small number of words can be yeah. very difficult. And I joined a community writing centre uh, yeah. locally near home, and uh, that was that was great. That was really helpful, and I, we'd have a writing prompt each week, and I'd write. And then ultimately I got to the point where <laughs> it was because my husband said, um, I think you've got to leave your job, Sue, because oh. you're never going to write. And so he was encouraging you to leave. Okay, yeah, well, that's good. I like yeah, that twist of events. Yeah, yeah, it was really generous of him to, to say that because, you know, that would have been scary financially, I think, for yeah. him. Uh, it was for me. And I left uh, and then really focused on writing for six months. And then luckily I was offered a part-time job back at my old place of employment. So that was perfect because then I could have, you know, an income and time to write, which is what everybody wants. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So now what stage of your life are you up to now in terms of years that you've got that part-time job? Early 40s. Uh, So it's... that is uh, just over a decade ago? Yes, it's around the time I started at Box Hill TAFE, okay. where I met you. Yeah, and that's where we met at yes. Box Hill TAFE in yes. first year novel. Yep. Okay. Now, did that help? It, it, my God, it certainly did. And uh, this will sound like, you know, a big advertisement for you and Mitchell. Uh, no worries, I'll five or later. Novel but, teacher, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there is a question. A lot of people ask, well, you know, can you learn to write? and uh, Or is it just something you're, you're born with? So from your point of view, your experience was? Well, the, I think the difference it made was there's a few things about it. So at that point, I had three abandoned part novels. I'd had a short story published. I'd had radio articles published. But I didn't really have... I didn't have a finished novel, and that's really what I wanted. And um, what TAFE did was a few things. One was that it put me into a circle of other people trying to do the same thing, which was great because I always felt like I was a total freak. I mean, how many accountants are trying to write novels? Maybe lots, but they didn't admit it to me. Sure. Um, so everybody, pretty much everyone I knew, friends and family, nobody was trying to write a book, and they just thought I was, you know, She's but then nuts. you are amongst like-minded people who yes. could give you feedback on your work. That's right. So the workshopping was, was fantastic and just being around others who were trying to write. And we did so many things in, in that class that were so helpful, so, so many um, sessions on things like dialogue and character development. And, but most of all for me was the structural stuff because I could never really see how to, how to finish a novel. How to, how to, I could get to the middle and then I just couldn't see where to go after that. So with story design, that was something you learned at TAFE, how to take it to a certain point and then not, not use a formula but a framework to see your way through to a suitable climax and resolution at the end. Is that pretty much what you found? Yeah, I think, I think it was that, that idea of a three-act model, which not you, know, you don't necessarily have to follow that, but that was a, a structure which I found very helpful. And we, we analysed Shrek. I remember having oh, to watch yeah. Shrek for homework. But it was something you could bounce off rather than follow slavishly. Yes. I, I think that's a point where people want to say, oh, it's formulaic, but rather than it being a framework. And then in second year, you did novel two with uh, a renowned author, Nick Gadd, a very good local author. How was Nick to work with at TAFE? Oh, fantastic. He, was, um, he, he asked lots of hard questions and I, find it, I found it a little bit scary initially because I thought I was kind of going along okay and I'd written quite a lot of my first draft and he just questioned everything. Particularly with humour, he would say, you know, I think this will be funnier if you dial it back a bit. Uh, maybe this joke you, you could put on the next page. You know, you've, you're trying to do, you're trying to be too funny too, too, too quickly. Oh, okay, too quickly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so now with all that under your belt, now that took over uh, two years, did it? Yep. Do, yeah. Okay. So you then pitched it to Tex Publishing 
And what was their response? Well, I like to say that um, unlike J.K. Rowling, the first publisher I sent the manuscript to took it. (laughs) (laughs) But they took it very slowly. They took it very, very slowly. And um, their initial response was, there were there were lots of things that they really liked about it. They loved the the characters, the dialogue, the voice. They said they could hear these people and see them. But um, the first thing was I had to cut so many words because it was over a hundred thousand. I think it was one hundred twenty thousand the Ooh. words the manuscript, and I had what? to cut thirty thousand words. Thirty thousand words, which was terrifying. How long did that take to do? Well. About a month, which doesn't oh, sound long, month? does it? But oh, I was very focused. Clock, I was very, you know? very focused because I thought this is a chance. I, yeah. I might not get another chance. Yeah. I've got to. I've got to do this. And the first um, twenty thousand were pretty easy to cut. I yeah. thought just cut any kind of obvious lyrical yeah. description stuff. But the last ten thousand was awful. It was like one word per line. That is an amazing achievement in a month. So we've gone right inside the writing process and even the pitching to text publishing, what it does take at times to get published and following that feedback. Because a lot of I know a lot of writers be horrified. I'm not cutting out 30,000 words. You know, this is my magnus opus. But the publisher, Michael Hayward, had a very clear vision for your genre, didn't he? He did, yeah. He, um, he, he said actually some things that probably sound a bit depressing to say to a, uh, a <laughs> someone about to be published. So he, he was very quick to point out that um, it takes a long time for a crime series to to, because he said it will have to be a series. Yep. You'll have to make this a series. Yep. And it can take seven books before anybody takes any notice. And you're just going to have to keep going if you want to make this work. And it's so depressing when you're on your third one and still nobody's taking any notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we are. So yes, we're yeah. On the third one, and I've got to say, look, it's available for pre-order now, uh, early in 2018. But it doesn't come out until May the first of 2018. Um, so you, you're welcome to go online and place pre-orders now. Um, now, I think you've got a little uh, synopsis for us on what Live and Let Fry is all about. Have you? I have. Yes. Uh, so first of all, I've got a little extract I can read okay. out to you. Um, so Vern, now Vern is Cass's neighbour in the other shop, Vern's general store. Vern slung his crocodile skin bag up onto my counter. Twelve of the bastards in there, counted on myself. I tried but failed to avert my gaze from the bag. It smelled, not a good smell, and really not the kind of smell you welcome in a quality food establishment. <laughs> That's Cass, so the whole thing's in Cass's voice. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a little blurb under that. For Cass Tuplin, proprietor of the Rusty Boar Takeaway and definitely not an unlicensed private investigator, it's weird enough that her neighbour Vern has somehow acquired a lady friend, but then he asked Cass to look into the case of the dead rats that someone's dumped on Joanne's doorstep. <laughs> Cass has barely started when Joanne goes missing, leaving hints of an unsavoury past, and then a private investigator from Melbourne turns up asking questions about Joanne's involvement in a fatal house fire. And before you can say unauthorised investigation, Cass is back on the case. <laughs> that is great. So it's Live and Let Fry by Sue Williams, published by Text Publishing. Thank you so much for being so generous of sharing your knowledge today, Sue. Thanks so much for having me, Ewan. Really enjoyed it. You're welcome. And that's our show for the week on Published or Not. Coming up next is Ruminations. And thank you very much to Sue Williams, who was my guest just then, and my earlier guest, Glenna Thompson, for helping to bring to life to flesh out our theme of compelling female protagonists in rural or country Victoria. And indeed, what it's like to do a mid-career change and bite the bullet and become a writer.